it. So again, this is uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But... Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he'd entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Thanks, Mark. Like Mark said, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Those of you who made a comeback Luke Simmons paper chain, you are down to maybe eight links left. So 
I will preach next week, and then we get Pastor Luke back, who is actually on sabbatical, so it's coming quick. So those of you that are like, is this Josh guy going to be done yet? Yes, he'll be done after next week. So um, I want to start off with some family news that's very difficult, but um, so I, okay, this isn't going to be easy, but uh, we had a the Chapman family, uh, Gia, you probably know she served in hospitality forever, uh, but Baxter Chapman passed away this past week, um, and uh, we just want to mourn with them. They have six kids, Baxter, Bronson, Hudson, Sablanca, Haven, and Cambridge, and they lost their dad, and Gia lost their, her husband, and actually... He's a friend of mine. I actually called him the week prior to ask him a question about something. So uh, we are mourning as a church. Um, Paul says we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We don't have hands. (laughs) Sorry. We don't have answers, but we have hope. So we're having a service at Redemption Gilbert. I expect there will be a lot of people. It'll be Tuesday, July 14th at 5. So if you'd like to be there and be, be there for the Chapman family, that's when the funeral service will be. So um, let's pray and just ask God to be here. God, we sing songs like Your Grace Finds Me. Um, and we sing it because we know it's true. Uh, we need your grace to find us. We need your grace to overwhelm us. We need your grace to overwhelm the Chapman family. Uh, God, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We mourn with a hope. Paul says the present sufferings of this world can't compare to the weight of glory we will experience one day, but we're still in the present day, God, so we need help. Be with us. Be with the folks in here who know the Chapman family who may be able to minister to them in some way. Just give them a profound sense of your presence. Be with our church. Be with the pastors at Redemption Gilbert as they put on this service. God, I pray people would walk out of that service saved. God, I pray the family would walk out of that service comforted and surrounded by a church who is with them for the long haul of what this is going to look like, God. So we need you. We ask that in your name, all God's people said, amen. Sorry. Oh, man. Usually I'm kind of funny, I'm told. I'm... Maybe have a joke or two in me today, I hope. Uh, my wife's probably glad I have less jokes, but here we go. Mark 9, we have a big section. Those of you new to maybe redemption, we are a uh, mostly exegetical preaching church. That means we preach verse by verse. I want to just make a caveat saying, in a bigger section like this, my goal isn't necessarily to get every verse and plug out every word and spend a lot of word on individual definitions, but to take the stories 
So story by story and lump them together and see what they all mean. So that's, we've got a few different stories. You saw it started on a mountain. Jesus does this thing called a transfiguration. What's that? I don't know. And then they go down the mountain and there's this guy with a kid problem. How's that fit in? I'm just going to try to take all those together and fit them into one thing. And here it is. Last week, Aaron did a great job. I watched his sermon. We are all blind by nature. Blind to the things that matter by nature. Blind to God, blind to his grace, blind to reality of sin, blind to the reality of our needing forgiveness. We are blind to what matters when we come into this world. And then God in his grace in the person of Jesus starts to take away our blindness. And it's foggy and fuzzy, but he is removing our blindness. If you're a Christian, you now see God for who he is. You see Jesus is the only hope for this world. You see your sin is the grossest thing that's ever entered this universe. And you see the greatest answer ever in the cross. You see that because of God's grace. This story is just a continuation of that. How does God improve our vision now that we are Christians? How many of you guys know if you have 20-20 vision? Anybody? Probably a lot of the younger crowd, congratulations, it goes away. I'm told my dad says at 30, you start to get fatter, and at 40, you go blind, so I'm heading towards the blind. So I'm getting fatter, and my vision's going. I have, or had, 2010 vision. Look at that, that's like superhero status. What does 2010 vision mean? 2010 is this. So 2020 means 20 feet away from something you see like a person should normally see something that's 20 feet away. Yours truly, 20 feet away, when I'm standing 20 feet away something, my vision is so amazing that it looks like I'm only 10 feet away. That's phenomenal. That's super. I have great vision. 2040, not so great. You're standing 20 feet away from something. It looks like it's 40 feet. 2080, you get the point. Vision, all of us have some sort of skewed vision. The same is true in our spiritual life. And here's how vision in the Christian life works. Far different than any other religion. Here's what God wants. Two things simultaneously happening as he improves your vision. The view of God gets bigger, 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 bigger. And the view of yourself gets smaller, smaller, smaller. When that's happening, your vision is getting better. You're getting closer and closer to 2020 spiritual vision. That's what God wants for us. Who is the second greatest human to ever live according to the Bible? The answer, John the Baptist. Jesus says, this guy is the greatest person ever to come out of a womb. And John the Baptist, in John 3.30, says this. This is kind of his tagline, his statement, his motto, his theme for his life. I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. God must get bigger, I must get smaller. That is the greatest human being who's ever lived. Out of the words of Jesus, we would be smart to listen. So here's what we all need in this moment, in any moment, when we're attending a funeral, when we're serving our kids, when we're going to work, God getting bigger, us getting smaller. So that's what we're going to do today. God is stretching our vision. He is getting himself bigger, getting ourselves smaller. In so doing, our vision gets better. That's all we're going to do today. Two sections. We're going to see God getting bigger, and then we're going to see ourselves and how God calls us to make ourselves smaller in how we view this world. This is for everyone. We all have a grand vision of ourselves in this world. We all... We just had a birthday party for my middle middle child, and my oldest child wants to insert himself into everything, into every gift opening, into the first one to eat the cake, the first one that he wants. And I'm the same way. I just don't look as childish because I'm an adult and I do it in subtle ways. But I want myself the center of the world 
and I've got this tiny little God over here who constantly wants to be increased, that's what he wants to do today. So are you with me? That's what we're doing today. The first section is this transfiguration. It's, a, it's kind of a weird church thing. Let's try to unpack it. Let's go to verse 9-2 then. Let's read this first story here. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. So those are kind of his closest three, the ones he's really investing in a lot. Led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and, there were, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, I love Peter, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Here's the first thing we're going to try to do today. Get a high, high view of God. I got a little definition. High, this is all I mean by it. Seeing God is bigger and better than we previously had. So Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus do miracles. They've seen him perform miracles that no one in this room has ever seen. They have seen a lot. And Jesus takes them up on this mountain to expose more of who he truly is. This is what I mean by getting high. We are trying to see God as higher and higher and higher and higher. A few things just to see. Elijah and Moses are there. Why are Elijah and Moses there? Here's the, here's the simple reason. Moses is the representative of the law. The Old Testament, the Jewish people have the law, and then they had the prophets who didn't add new law. They just reminded their people of the law that God had already given them. So Jesus is standing there, and he's got the law and the prophets testifying to this guy right here. And what happens to Jesus? Now, this is just weird because you can't really explain. Explain what happened. They try. He says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. What's he, he's saying Jesus goes on this mountain, and then Elijah and Moses appear, and Jesus just becomes so white and so full of light that they're trying to come up with words. It's like, you, it's like not, you can't even bleach it that much. Like That's the best description we have for what happened. Here's all that happened. When Jesus came down to earth, his humanity kind of put the clothes over his divinity so he looked very human. He goes up on this mountain and Jesus kind of gives him a little picture. Here's my divinity. And they're just struggling to find words to describe him. They are getting an awe-filled picture of Jesus there. How does this apply to us? Uh, Jesus is not going to take any of us up a mountain, expose his divinity in that sort of way, and then lay us down the mountain to go serve with him. But here's what God does. He expands our vision of himself. So just to tell you how this happens in my life and has happened and continues to happen, the first time God ever got bigger than my little view, I grew up Catholic, so I had a view of God. He was mostly angry. He wasn't that happy with me. And I was going to spend eternity with him on a cloud, probably never interacted. That was my God. And I went to an FCA camp, got saved, and I got saved in the moment. I'm watching this big football player rock his baby, and God, in his grace, opened my eyes and said, that's my relationship I want. I want to be your dad. Boom. Mount of transfiguration moment for me. God's actually a loving dad type figure. 
Fast forward, I go to grad school. I don't have any friends. I'm in Texas. I'm all alone. What do I do? I, I, this Bible, I've kind of been putzing around in a little bit. I go to Barnes & Noble, and I read it cover to cover a few times. For the first time in my life, I saw the story of God and his plan of redemption and how Jesus fits into it and how I'm not the center of this story. I'm just a, a lucky recipient. Bam! Transfiguration. Bigger God in my head. I still have this goofy view of heaven. When I think of heaven, I'm never that excited. I'm not married at this time. I, I want to be married because I feel like getting married and get to enjoy all the benefits of marriage will be the greatest thing on earth. And may, if I had to go to heaven, oh, gosh, that, that would be lame. And then someone gives me this book on, called Heaven, very creative title, written by Randy Alcorn. It's kind of a big textbook type thing. And I read it, bam, Mount of Transfiguration, God's picture of heaven. Not so much heaven, but his renewal of all things, a new heaven, a new earth where I get to enjoy things that I enjoy on earth and I get to be with God as a person and I'm not some fat cherub on a cloud. It's a real place with real people, with real things to enjoy. Mount of Transfiguration. God is continually exposing himself as bigger than our little truncated views we have of himself. He mostly does it in an ongoing way in my life now through reading. That might not be reading and being outdoors. But I, just for your own sake, talk with your spouse or your friends or your kids or whoever, your RC people. Like, what are the things that just expand your view of God? And not in a weird, like, charismatic, off-the-rocker way, but in a real substantial, God's vision in my brain gets bigger when I'm blank. Because we all have a God that's this big who really deserves to be this big. That's what the Mount of Transfiguration was. These folks were going to watch him go to the cross and die. They had no slot in their head for that. So Jesus, in his grace, is giving a picture of, don't forget who I am. I'm the guy on the mountain. Showed you his robe. I showed you I'm Superman. Nothing stops me. We need high, high moments with God. We all do. Our vision of God is too small. Martin Luther, in a debate with the guy of his day, said this, your picture of God is too human. Meaning, you take all these human things and you try to form a God out of how you picture the best possible human. Was Jesus human? Yes. Is his humanity important? Yes. He's going to be human for the rest of time. That's all important. But God transcends all that. If you went and did a survey, I just saw a little kind of quick argument on Facebook. A guy said, post kind of the Supreme Court stuff, said, I'm so sick and tired of people saying God is love. He's more than that. And then a bunch of people, how dare you say that? Because if you asked just your average church-going American, what's the top quality of God, I'm guessing they'd all say God is love. Now, I don't know if the Bible necessarily backs that up, nor does this story, because when they're there and Jesus kind of exposes his godness for just a second, it says they're terrified. Not they, wanna, they don't want to cuddle up next to him. They are terrified and they just start jabbering because they're so scared. So yes, God is love, but he's far more than that. The word in here that gets the most kind of play from the Hebrews and how they want words kind of talked about is the word holy. Jewish people, when they want to make a point, they don't use an adjective. So in America, we say, my kid is smart. He's really smart. He's incredibly smart. We kind of add a word in front to fluff up this word. My son, Roman, is so silly. 
you get the point. Hebrews did this. Whatever word they're trying to say, they just keep repeating it. Roman is silly, silly, silly. Elijah is smart, smart, smart. Josh is annoying, annoying, annoying. So when God comes on the scene in the, in the life of Isaiah, who's a prophet, the angels are around, and they're just saying, holy, holy, holy. Fast forward to the book of Revelation. Same thing, same scene, angels around, giving the descriptor for God, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. Only in this point in Revelation, it says they never stop. Holy, holy, holy. Is God loving? Absolutely, but he is holy loving. He is holy good. He is holy righteous. He is holy smart. He is holy sovereign. He is different than what we understand. And God has to take us to this mountaintop experience to expose just a little bit of his godness. And we walk away going, wow. Wow. That's what's happening there. That's what church, this experience, hopefully does on a Sunday in a small sort of way. As you come here and you leave going, wow. That's, yeah, that's what I needed. We need a bigger view of God. Now, I love this next section. Let's pick up in verse 7 here. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. God just takes their view of God and blows it up and makes it bigger. But he doesn't just want a bunch of Christians, a bunch of disciples walking around with this grandiose picture in their head of God. I love the simplicity of this. A cloud overshadowed them. What does a cloud mean to a Jewish person? The exodus, the people are wandering around, the thing leading them, the thing guiding them, the thing they go when it says go and stop when it says stop is a cloud. And a cloud comes to remind them of that moment. God speaks to the disciples, not to Jesus. And this is all he says. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So God's transfiguration moments never leave us coming down here and just skipping our feet. La, 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 this great God. God wants more authority than he previously had in your life. We call that lordship. We say Jesus is Lord. He wants to expose himself for who he is, give you a grand view of himself, so that we go down the mountain and the words listen to him ring in our ears. Should we be singing and praising on a Sunday? Absolutely. But we should wake up Monday with the thought, listen to him. God needs to get bigger in all of our lives. That's what he's doing here with the disciples. God wants a bigger view in my head, in your head, in every pastor alive's head. Nobody has this thing figured out. We all got a God who's too small, an us that's too big, and God is constantly fixing that. And to the disciples, I just love the simplicity. I don't have to teach much. Listen to him. That's it. So listen to him. I mean, you can go back this past week and go back through your decisions and just say, when was I confronted with God and his truth and the idea that I should listen to him? And what did I do with that? Because God wants us to listen to him. Because he's some evil, distant God? No, because he's a personal dad who knows what's best for me. Listen to him. We need a bigger view of God. Now, a lot of us love mountaintop experiences. We had some kids just go to FCA camp. You go to FCA camp, you play sports, and a lot of times you meet God. That's where I met God. I met Jesus Christ, 18 years old, at a baseball camp. 
but we don't live on the mountaintops. Some of you married folks are going to go on our married retreat we have coming up here in a couple weeks, end of the month. Trip is an amazing teacher. You are going to leave that thing so in awe of God, so in love with marriage, so in awe of God's grace in your marriage. And then you're going to go home and sleep next to someone with bad breath. And the mountaintop is then over. We don't stay up here. We come down here to life for most of our life. So let's read here now verse 9. Let's get down low now. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus showed them what he needed to show them. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. This is confusing. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. What is going on here? As they're going down, this is just, the Lord gave me this. You never have it figured out. You could go to the greatest mountaintop experience of your faith and see God in a new and fresh and amazing way like never before. Start walking down and you're still trying to figure out some stuff. The disciples just saw probably the greatest moment in human history up to this point. Jesus, the guy who is God, the guy who is going to save the world, the guy who is going to be the king of all the universe, exposes just a bit of that. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Greatest moment in history. They're walking down the mountain and they're kind of trying to still trying to figure out their theology. That should be encouraging. Nobody ever has this thing nailed. You're going to leave mountaintop experiences and still have questions. Their question refers to Elijah. This is simply, in the Jewish faith, there was going to be one last prophet, Elijah. And Elijah was going to precede the Messiah. They're like, what's up with this Elijah guy? And Jesus, in a cryptic sort of way, says, Elijah did come. Elijah is John the Baptist. The last prophet that was going to come and then pass the baton on to Jesus was John the Baptist. He did come and he did restore all things. But it looks different than what you expected. Because I've got to suffer things, and my ending doesn't make sense in your own head yet. John the Baptist was here. He was Elijah. And what happened to him? Verse 13, I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. What happened to John the Baptist? I preached on this a few weeks ago. They cut off his head. That's no good for your prophet you're waiting for to restore all things. And they're just trying to make sense of all this. Come down the mountain. You don't have it figured out. God still has stuff to teach you. And here's where I think we'd like to spend the bulk of our time. God also wants to spend a chunk of time, most of your life, shrinking you in your own mind. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. No man will ever think much of Christ till he thinks little of himself. The lower our own views of ourselves become, the higher our thoughts of Jesus will be raised. You could have a mountaintop experience, see God in an amazing way. If you come down and you're still puffed up with pride and amazed with yourself that you got to experience that, that's not what God wants for you. And that's not clear vision. God's got to get bigger, but we've also got to shrink. So we've got three stories here showing us how Jesus shrinks us. This first one is about this boy and his dad. Verse 14, let's read it. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. So the three disciples, Peter, James, John, come down and they see this big argument. 
They just saw Jesus unveil who he was. They come down, and the rest of the disciples are arguing with scribes in this big crowd. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able And he answered them, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? He said, from childhood. He has often cast him into the fire and the water, trying to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. God also wants, as our vision of him grows, a lower view of ourselves. Here's how I define lower. Seeing ourselves as less prominent than we previously had. Not less valuable, less loved, less adored, less forgiven, less prominent. We are the center of the universe, and Jesus is trying to shrink that. And he does it here in three stories, seeing ourselves as less prominent. These disciples had never failed at anything they had done in this book of Mark so far. They go around and they cast out demons, they feed people with the loaf, they feed thousands, that whatever needs to happen gets done by them. The only sort of rejection they get is from people who say, I don't want that Jesus guy, and they dust off their feet, and then they leave and go to the next house. But they never attempt something and fail until this moment here. And there is a father with a son who is filled with a demon who is trying to kill the boy, and the disciples probably a little arrogant, a little sure of themselves, have been gaining all this popularity and success, try to do it, and nothing happens. They fail. Here's what God wants us to see about ourselves. We are far less able than we think. Far less able than we think. Moses, if you read the story of Moses, when God calls Moses, Moses has this laundry list of excuses. I don't speak well. Not that great. I kind of killed somebody, um, you know, a few things, just a few minor details. And God never disagrees with Moses' assessment of himself. He never, oh, Moses, you're a better talker than you think. Oh, Moses, they'll, they'll fall. He totally agrees with this assessment. You are not that good. You're not that great of a speaker, but guess what? I chose you. It's not about your ability. It's about me working through you. We are far less able. These people encounter evil. 
just straight evil, a demon trying to kill an innocent kid, a dad who is helpless, disciples show up with a little ministry success and think they can do something on their own and they fail. Jesus says this only comes out by prayer, by complete dependence on the spirit in this moment. I mean, that was this week for me. I am a public speaker, obviously. I'm kind of witty. I'm good with people. I feel a little arrogant talking about myself. Shall I go on? I, I, people like me. And I've got a family that I love who is going through some stuff. And I'm driving in the car over there, and I can think of nothing that I can offer them. What's my wit going to do in that moment? What's my intellect and my degrees and my ability to think and reason going to do? Nothing. God wants us in these moments because we realize, I can't do this. Moms, you are going to fail at being a mom a lot, so God can remind you of this truth. Because if we had a bunch of moms who figured it out and did this, we would have the most arrogant, big-headed women in the world in this church. And that's not the case. By God's grace, that won't happen. So you're going to fail a lot, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. It's not about us. He may gift us in certain ways, but when it comes down to it, the big issues in this world get accomplished because God's Spirit acts through people who are dependent on Him. That's it. We are surrounded by the LDS community. Surrounded. How are the LDS community, how are Mormons in our neighborhood going to get saved? They are blinded to the truth of grace, blinded to the truth of who Jesus is, blinded to the truth of this scripture being the only spoken word of God. What can we offer them that's going to bring them into this church? God can through us if he wills. That's it. Muslims are coming to the end of their Ramadan. This is their big moment where they get to celebrate all that they know about God, which happens to be a lie. My Muslim friends, what can I offer them? A witty, some witty banter, some apologetic stuff? Yes, I will try all that and I will love them. But this only happens by prayer. Complete dependence on the Spirit. When you fail, thank God. When you fail, thank God. No other religion teaches that. Because every other religion is you creating this false resume. Check, check, check. So you've got to foster your success and push away your failures. Christianity says, embrace your failures. Apostle Paul says, I boast in my weakness because his grace has shown more in that. That is what the church is about. That is what grace is about. That is what Jesus wants in his disciples. He wanted to see this failure because he'd say, it ain't about you, folks. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. We are not that able. Next point we see. Let's read this next story. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he is teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. Here's the other thing God wants us to see less of in ourselves, less righteousness. These disciples still don't get that Jesus has to go to the cross. No, here's what the disciples have brought to the table when the idea of death and a cross and suffering has come out of Jesus' mouth. Peter's rebuked them, and the rest of them are confused. Not one of these disciples has said, why does he have to die? 
Because none of them assume they're that bad to where what is required to fix God's relationship with us is the death of God. They don't get that. They think there's a few tweaks here and there you can make. The death of God. Just say, God had to die for you to become his friend. That is the only way it could have happened. The disciples don't get it. Why don't we believe that? Because we think we're not that bad. That's why every religion exists. It's kind of a cute way to package what it is we're going to offer to God for him to accept us. Christianity says, here's what you can offer. The death of a perfect human being. I, I don't have that. Then I'll offer it. You just trust in him. We are going to be confronted with our failure and see that we're less able. And constantly, hopefully in this church, because we believe the Bible's true, you'll be confronted with your lack of righteousness. Me as well. We don't have as much righteousness as we think. In fact, Romans would say we have none. The righteousness we boast about is Jesus. And last thing here God has for us, verse 33. We'll end on this story. And then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? I love this. He's talking about the cross, the greatest moment in human history. He overhears them kind of bantering. What were you guys discussing back there? But they kept silent because they knew what they were talking about. For on the way, they were arguing with, with one another who was the greatest. How beautiful is that? Jesus is talking about the greatest moment in human history, the death of God on the cross in the place of sinners. His boys are back here following. I get front seat. Shut up. I get front seat. No, I get front seat. I'm better than you. I know more Hebrew. I get. And Jesus says, back there, what are you guys chatting about? Uh, Nothing. Thomas was questioning something. I don't know. Over there. (laughs) But they kept silent for on the way, for they argued about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him, God the Father who sent me. Here's the last thing Jesus wants us to see. We are far less prominent than we need to be. My view of myself is way too big in the story of this world. In my view of the world. God says true greatness. I love that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for wanting to be great. He just rebukes them for the route they're trying to take. Be great. But here's how you're going to be great. Be a servant of all. Be last of all. I mean, just take a second. Turn around and look at this. Look around. Try to just glance at everyone in here. What Jesus is saying is when you walk into this setting or any setting, your goal should be to be the least person in there. The least prominent. Your job is to serve the people you come into contact with all the time. And the picture he gives is a child. Welcome a child. In so doing, you welcome me. Why does, it, why does he use a child? Same re- because they're, they're not that special. Meaning, like, what does a child offer us? Thank yous, not not rarely. They don't have the adult ability yet. I want you to serve people who aren't necessarily going to thank you, who are just going to take you for granted. How's that? Who just expect that you're going to show up on their behalf. That's what I want you to serve. What else do kids not have? What can they pay me back with? 
I'm going broke raising three kids. It is unbelievable. What is he ever going to pay me back? I want you to serve people who aren't going to thank you and can't pay you back in any way, shape, or form like you're used to being paid back. What else do kids do, especially in this culture and a little bit in our culture? But they don't really help your status. You go serving kids. You don't get put, put on billboards and raved about a little bit in their Christian environment because we have the fruit of the Spirit. But mostly we lift up the people who make money, make wonderful things. Jesus says, I want you to go and serve the people who aren't going to thank you, aren't going to appreciate you, are going to take you for granted, who can't give you anything, who are helpless on their own. Go serve them. So church, that's our call. So here's, I mean, here's what I'd ask you. Think about how you're serving people. I love Ayala's story up here. Yeah, they come in here and they love the preaching and teaching and God's getting bigger and bigger. But if they leave with just that and get in their car and never interact with people, that's wrong. That's not the vision God wants. He wants this vision. He doesn't want you going up with God. Big God, small me, that's what he wants. He must increase, I must decrease. Serve. So church, this isn't like any big, no elders told me to do this. Think about where you're serving. And if you're not Serve somewhere. In Jesus' name, like Jesus did, serve. People who aren't going to thank you, not because you're amazing, but serve because Jesus said serve, and that's the way your faith is going to get improved. Now, here's what's interesting about that statement. Lots of churches who I would never send people to could end on that statement, who aren't necessarily gospel-centered. Serve, let's go serve in Africa. Let's go serve here. Yeah, let's go do it. But there's a gospel piece we must always remind ourselves of. This little figure up here, this little graphic, I've been looking at it for now, I don't know, six months. There's two mountains on there. The mountain on the left, anybody know what that is after reading this story? Lights coming down, shining up, that is the Mount of Transfiguration. That's where Jesus just showed himself to these guys. The mountain on the right, that's where the cross happened. Here's what being gospel-centered means, just in a real practical way. As you go and think about how are you going to make God bigger and how are you going to serve more, that's all fine and good. You all need to do that, and some of you need to get off your duffs and go serve, for sure. But in so doing, don't forget who the hero of the story is. Peter is the rock. Rock, that is a great name. Rock, doesn't move, doesn't move. On the Mount of Transfiguration, what is the rock doing? He's nervously just bantering because he doesn't know what to say. I, can, can I make a tent? <laughs> you idiot. What's he doing on the Mount of Calvary where Jesus is bleeding to death naked alone? He's scared and he's not there. So in our doing and in our serving, don't forget, you are not the hero. The hero is the guy walking to the cross who did it all faithfully and perfectly. Not you or the rock who on mountaintop experiences just put your foot in your mouth or when Jesus needs you most to speak up, you're gone. It's not about us, amen? amen. That's something we can get fired up about. No matter what happens, and I'll horrible of a week I've had, I rest in that. It's not about me and how I show up and perform. The rock can't perform, I can't perform, you can't perform, Jesus performed perfectly. That's the gospel. Let's pray.
God, thank you for figures like Peter. Thank you for not writing him out of the story because he's a bonehead. Thank you for writing every little bit of information so we could see the rock nervously talking at a moment where he should have been in awe. And we can see chapters down the way when he should have been there. Embracing his loving Savior, he was gone. And God, thank you for the cross and the reality that Jesus is the one who performs this well. Jesus serves the least of these best. Jesus does all this perfectly. And we can rest in that. It's not about us. Matter of fact, John Baptist said it best. We need less of us and more of you, God. So pray that happens in this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.